have given us grace through your Son. You have given us mercy. You have credited his righteousness to us. Father, we thank you that in Christ this morning we stand justified, reconciled to you. But we will easily and readily confess that sometimes the way we live doesn't reflect the standing that we have in Christ. That we live as if we are still the old creature. We will live as if Christ didn't die for us. Live as if we are still the lords and masters of our own souls. And maybe, maybe some of us in here this morning can point to specific times this week where we have drifted back into the old way of life. And Father, we confess that and we ask you to forgive us. We pray that you would reveal to us those places, those areas of our lives where we have, uh, where we have turned back, where we have gone back to the old way of life and remind us who we are in Christ. Remind us that Christ is not the one who taught us those things. Christ has given us new life. The Holy Spirit dwells within us if we are your children. And so we have every resource we need to resist sin, to resist temptation, and to live godly lives. So help us, Lord, to walk in newness of life. And may our time together this morning in this service be a checkpoint, a milestone for us, that we would be refreshed in our spiritual walk, that we would be reminded of the eternal value of walking in a godly way, that we would be reminded of the danger of sin and the emptiness of it, and that you would plant in our hearts a new godly affection. that our hopes would be in you, that holiness would be our pursuit and our delight. And Lord, as we pray this morning, uh, there are many needs represented in this congregation. I want to pray for those who are going back to school soon, if they haven't already. Some have already begun, some are about to begin and this school year is going to be challenging, at least at the beginning, because everything is so different than what they are used to. And so I pray that you would give those students wisdom and patience. Help them to work diligently. Remind them, first and foremost, that their schoolwork is a calling from you on their lives. And so help them to work with all of their might diligently for your glory. We pray that you would give them the grace they need to respond to the different situations wherever they are. For those who are teaching, either going back into the classroom or parents having to navigate the 
the new challenge of homeschooling or, or dealing with these new situations. I pray that you would give them grace and strength and wisdom and patience. Help them to see their work as a calling from you, as a ministry, a vital ministry. Lord, I pray for those among us who have been fighting illness over the last several weeks and some who even can't be with us today. I pray that you would bring healing and relief. I pray that you would give each one of them grace as they try to remain encouraged and strong through their struggle. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts, keep their focus on you, and we pray that you would deliver them quickly. And Lord, I pray specifically for Erin uh, as she prepares to deliver this baby tomorrow, Lord willing. We pray that you would allow every step of, of that experience to uh, be marked by health and safety. We pray that this would be a joyous time for Tom and Aaron and all the family. And uh, we look forward to hearing good news um, about a safe delivery and a healthy mom and baby very soon. In the meantime, we pray that you would give strength and health for them. And Lord, as we come to your word now and we prepare to look at a passage that stands as a warning to us, as we look into your word and we see a lesson from a very negative example. We pray that this would not be a discouraging or unnecessarily heavy passage, but that we would understand what it is that you are trying to teach us through your word, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to respond, that this text would be used to help us to walk in the way of Christ-likeness. Give us wisdom as we listen, as we look into your word and study. Give us understanding. We pray that you would continually change us, sanctify us, help us to walk after the character of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 4. When I plan a sermon series, I don't lay out every single message from the very beginning. Sometimes I feel like that might put us into a box, and sometimes we need to be flexible and let the text direct us to where we need to go. When I plan a sermon series, my general approach is that if I am completing a series through a New Testament book, I intend to go to the Old Testament next, right? And sometimes you're right, there's exceptions to that. And um, we finished 1 Timothy. And as I was evaluating and praying about what to do next, um, I was looking at several different options in the Old Testament. And one of the things that the Lord had laid on my heart was Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Not to go through the whole book right away, but to break it up into three different volumes. And to go through the first 11 chapters, which really serve as a foundation for a Christian worldview. 
I had no idea at the time that I was planning to go through this, what 2020 was going to hold for us. And I'm not talking just about the coronavirus. I'm talking about the clear and focused worldview conflict that has been going on for a long time, but seems to have become even more volatile in 2020. I had no idea it was going to be that pronounced. I had no idea that the first four chapters of Genesis, which is where we've ended up so far, were going to have so much rich instruction for us. And I had no idea that Genesis chapter 4 was going to be such a clear and accurate description of the world we live in today. But it is. If we have eyes to see it and ears to hear. As we come to our text today in chapter 4, verses 17 through 26, we see a divinely revealed contrast between two basic civilizations of mankind. Two basic civilizations of mankind. And when I say that, I'm not speaking about a contrast between earthly nations. I'm not speaking about east versus west. I'm not speaking about north versus south, white versus black, and certainly not about Democrat versus Republican. I'm speaking about the fundamental worldviews and the spiritual heart conditions that shape the way we live, that determine what we live for and reveal where we are headed in eternity. What this passage gives us is a contrast between two and the only two basic foundational civilizations. And every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl who has ever lived has lived in one of these two civilizations. The early church father, Augustine, has famously written a work entitled The City of God. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. In that work, he contrasts the way of the world with the way of God. The one way he calls the city of man, the other he calls the city of God. One is characterized by love for, by love for self and contempt for God. The other is characterized by love for God and contempt of self. One is fueled by self-righteousness and independence from God. The other is fueled by humility and dependence upon God. Both cities progress and grow. But the end of one is destruction, while the end of the other is eternal life. In our text for today, we see this contrast illustrated by two sons of Adam and their family lines, Cain and Seth. We've come a long way in just a short time from the perfect world of Genesis 1 and 2. In chapter 3, we find out what fundamentally has gone wrong with the world and what's gone wrong with humanity. And in a word, the problem is sin. And at its heart, we find out that sin is a rejection of God, a rejection of His authority, a rejection of His word and His design. 
Sin is not just a little mistake. It is nothing short of a foolish declaration of independence from God. And every sin committed since then by every person who has ever lived is the same. It is rebellion against God. It is an insistence that we know better and will do things our own way. And that tendency is woven into the sinful nature of every person. Our only hope for deliverance then from this sin and from its consequences is to be saved, to be regenerated or born again by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in the midst of the curse of chapter 3, God actually gives a glimmer of hope that He will provide this Savior, this Deliverer, this Redeemer, to do just that, to save His people from their sins. That gives us hope for the future. But as we come to chapter 4, we see a snapshot of life in this world under sin and the effect that sin has. We see the conflict that now characterizes every age of human history. It is a conflict between those who trust in God's promise by faith and those who don't, between those who live according to God's word and those who don't, between those who will see God and those who will be forever driven from his presence. We saw the beginning of this conflict, the beginning of this contrast in verses 1 through 16 in the lives of Abel and Cain. Today we're going to look at it further in verses 17 through 16 in the family line of Cain and the family line of Seth and his descendants. So let's look at our text now. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 4 starting in verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered, fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered, fathered Lamech. That's your memory verse for this week, by the way. Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother na brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, to Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
The structure of this passage is really quite simple. We're going to look at the contrast between two civilizations, the civilization of the ungodly and the civilization of the godly. We want to notice the characteristics that this passage highlights, but most of all, we want to evaluate our own hearts and consider which civilization are we living in and living for today? Which one characterizes our lives? Let's notice, first of all, the civilization of the ungodly. The text spends most of its time here, verses 17 through 24, and together with the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 16, this text serves as a warning for all of us, reminding us of the rapid downward spiral of sin and the ungodly nature of life apart from the knowledge of God. How quickly sin takes root and destroys. We're just a few generations in to the population of the world at this point. The first characteristic that this passage reveals about the civilization of the ungodly is its technological advancement. Now, that might surprise you. That might catch you off guard a little bit because I've just set you up for a negative characteristic and then I mentioned technological advancement. You were expecting something negative, weren't you? But this sounds positive. And it is. And we should view it as positive. It is a good thing. And that leads us as we observe what this text teaches us about technological advancement, we need to understand right here at the outset an important point. That by God's common grace and the fact that all people are created in the image of God, even unregenerate people are capable of accomplishing and producing great things. Much of the world that we enjoy today is the result of, of that in some degree. So even as this passage describes the downward moral slide of humanity, it still acknowledges the ability for mankind to learn, to discover, to grow, to produce, and to prosper. But it also sends out a warning to us right here at the beginning. Don't be deceived into thinking that technical advancement means everything is okay. But at the same time, we see here that while we certainly lament the ungodliness of the present age, nevertheless, we can still rejoice in the good things that God has allowed to be accomplished in this world. And we can still enjoy the good things this world has to offer. Now, what does this technological advancement look like? What are we talking about? I don't know that we can make such a stretch as to say that Cain was walking around with a cell phone. But we're going to see that what they accomplished was actually pretty impressive. The technological advancement we see in this passage begins with the mention of the building of a city. That brings us to verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. 
Now, all right, before we get to the city part, let's just stop there and ask the question that some of you are already thinking. Where did his wife come from? Right? Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. Where did, Eve, where did Cain's wife come from? For some people, that has been a very confusing question. For skeptics, it has become a foundation of an argument that, see, you can't make these details work. These stories aren't true. But if you think about it, the answer is pretty obvious. Who did Cain marry? He married a sister. Okay? Um, we learn in chapter 5, verse 4, that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. We don't see their names. We don't see their lineage here. Right? We don't know who they were because the story is selective. But Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. There was no law at that point forbidding such relationships. And the genetic and the health issues that would come up with something like that today were not existent back then. This is how the world's population began to spread. So, that answers that question. But then, moving on, we read that Cain's wife conceived and bore Enoch. You might recognize that name, Enoch. But understand that this is not the Enoch who walked with God and did not die. This is another Enoch. The godly Enoch we find in chapter 5, he was a descendant of Seth. This Enoch is a descendant of Cain, his son. And the name means initiation. And it seems to mark what Cain thought was going to be a new beginning in life for him. Right? Remember, Cain had been cursed by God to a life of wandering because he had sinned against God repeatedly and rejected the authority of God in his life. But after being cursed by God, we see Cain finds a wife, has a son, and then we read he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So that should strike you a little bit odd too, right? Because in verse 12 we were told, that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. But here, he seems to settle down into a permanent place to call home. What's going on? Well, it appears that Cain, once again, is continuing the lifestyle he has lived to this point and rejecting the word of the Lord and doing his own thing, regardless of what God had said. All through his life, he chooses to go his own way, away from God. And because of that, things did not end well for him. He was driven away from his earthly relationships. He was driven into a life of wandering and no prosperity. And it is true that those who wander from God will find a void in their lives. And they will try to fill it with something. And that's what Cain does here. He marries, has a son, and in another act of defiance against God's order, he establishes his own city. Now, we don't know what the population of the city was, but that word city doesn't necessarily mean thriving metropolis, like we might think of today. It could just mean a settlement of some sort. And he names it after Enoch, his son, as if he's looking to the future and pinning his hopes on him. Now, in order for Cain to establish a city, there have to be what? People. 
because otherwise he's just setting up camp, right? There have to be people here. So what this tells us is that there is a population by this point. We need to understand that the genealogy information that we find in this chapter is selective. It's not telling us about every person who lived on the earth. And it is, it is sequential in that it is showing us in each line who comes next. But the story of Cain and the story of Seth are not given chronologically, as if all of this happened to Cain and then later all of this happened to Seth. Those are sort of recapping the same time period. Okay, so there is overlap here between the lines of Cain and the lines of Seth as they are listed. And again, there are other children as well that Adam and Eve had, we learned in chapter 5. Now, I want us to put together a little bit of an understanding of the passing of time here so that we understand what's, how this is playing out. We learn in chapter 5 that these people are living to over 900 years old, right? Um, there isn't the genetic deterioration that's happened throughout the centuries. They are living over 900 years. And if you look at when they start their families, they're not even starting their families until they're over 100 years old. Okay? This, we can't, this doesn't compute with us, does it? But this is the reality of that world. This is what it was like. So you put all that together, and it is a safe assumption that by the time Enoch was born to Cain, the earth is at least 200 years old, okay? And there is a rapidly growing population because a lot of reproduction can happen in that amount of time. And there were other sons and daughters, perhaps many sons and daughters. And that brings us to verse 18, where we find a list of the next several generations in Cain's line. To Enoch was born Erad, to Erad, Erad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Now that verse just covered hundreds of years. If you think about it, if you follow this pattern. Lamech is now the seventh generation from Adam, and the earth is likely now 800 or more years old. And it's important to note, by the way, that Lamech was the seventh generation from Adam, because we're going to find out in chapter 5 that the seventh generation from Adam through the line of Seth was Enoch, who walked with God and did not die because God translated him to heaven. These lines are intended to be a distinct contrast to each other, the godly line and the ungodly line. And we'll see that as we get into chapter 5. Now, so Lamech is the, the, the focal point here of the ungodly line coming from Cain. In verse 19, we read Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But now we need to talk about what does this technological advancement look like. In verses 20 and 22, we see some of it. Ada bore Jabel. By the way, if you're looking to make suggestions for names for your children or your grandchildren, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. 
probably not the best ideas, but they at least have a rhythm to them. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Here we're introduced to three sons of Lamech and to a daughter. But nothing's said about the daughter. These sons play a significant role in the development of society and civilization. Jabal was the leader in working with animals. We've already seen that Abel was, was a, a shepherd of sorts, but when we see that Jabal was working with the animals, this was more than just keeping the sheep. This was talking about any kind of animal that could be domesticated and used for the betterment of mankind. So Jabal was the original rancher, I guess we could say. And Jubal, his brother, was the original musician, an expert in musical instruments and likely other aspects of the arts to go with it. And Tubal-Cain was a master in the work of metal. This could include a whole range of work, from the mining of it to the purification of it to the forging of it to the use of it. This could be mining any sort of metallurgy, blacksmithing, and more having to do with metals. So farming, shepherding, we're already in the picture. Now society advances even further with these professions, these disciplines. We're seeing the formation of culture and technology. And by the time these men are born, the earth is likely 800 to 900 years old, and it is said that the population at this point could have been in the hundreds of thousands, interestingly enough, in another 800 or so years, when the flood hits, it is said that the population could have been as high as 7 billion people. Now think about this, they're living into the 900s, in terms of age. That means that they are spending 800 or more years in these professions. Now you think about the fact that mental capacity back then was probably higher than it is now. You think about the fact that they're spending hundreds of years becoming proficient in their trade and passing it on from generation to generation while all living alongside each other. I don't think it is a stretch to say that the world prior to the flood was a highly civilized, highly advanced society. Now, we don't know what that looks like. Right? We, we don't know what it looked like because everything was destroyed. But it was highly populated, highly advanced. And from the very beginning, we see that mankind has been capable of great accomplishments. He has. Mankind has not evolved to what we are today. There is actually a sense in which we have devolved to what we are today. But all of these advancements, all of these valuable contributions, apart from God, lose their meaning. They lose their value. And they cannot do anything 
to redeem man or reconcile us to God. In fact, in the hands of sinful men, these technological advances often become harmful and used to serve and to feed the selfishness of man, even at the expense of others. There's probably no greater example of that in history than the development of nuclear power, right? The same nuclear power that can light your home can level a city. And we see that mankind took great pride in the accomplishments of our technological development until a nuclear bomb was dropped on a city and we saw how low mankind can really go, right? And so we see that tension between man's technological advancement and the next thing that this passage brings out about the civilization of the ungodly, and that is its moral decline. Moral decline. The focal point of the line of Cain here is Lamech. Lamech is the illustration of the moral decline of a society, even in the midst of its advancement. And the two most vivid aspects of this decline, you could probably guess them. The two most vivid aspects of this decline are in the area of sexual morals and violence. Sexual morals and violence. And this is true throughout history even in our own day, that the two most visible and dominant signs of a decline in civilization that rejects God is sexual perversion and violence. You can read more about that by reading Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3. And that is illustrated here. So in verse 19, we read, Lamech took two wives. Now, we might easily overlook that, especially if you know that throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of men who have two or more wives. But this is the first instance recorded in Scripture of a clear deviation from God's command and design. When God established marriage back in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, the clear design and command was that marriage was only and exclusively between one man and one woman. That's it. That's marriage. And whenever we see a deviation from that design and from that command in Scripture, even among otherwise godly people, though God may not always directly punish it, there are always problems associated with it. And here... Lamech's taking of two wives is evidence of a twisted moral mindset, a twisted sexual mindset, and it is a clear rejection of God and His Word. And that is just the starting point. For as we have witnessed by looking at history, and as we have witnessed in our own society, sexual immorality is a continual degeneration it gets more and more perverse. And this mention of a perverted marriage is a hint, no doubt, that sexual perversion was already common at that time. And then in verses 23 and 24, we read about the violence, not just the sexual immorality, but the violence. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, 
Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Spent a lot of time thinking that was Lamech lamenting a regrettable action on his part in fear that God would avenge this death on him. But it isn't. This is a man who killed somebody and wrote a song about it. It's not a lament. There is no sorrow for having killed this young man. In fact, it is just the opposite. It is a triumphant song of self-glory. This is Lamech pounding his chest and perhaps even wielding a sword that his son Tubal-Cain forged for him. The language here that he killed this young man for striking him contrasts the two actions, and it has the idea of a gross overreaction, dealing out a pound of punishment for an ounce of offense. And Lamech is proud about it. He boastfully proclaims that if God will avenge sevenfold any harm that comes to Cain, then Lamech will do far, far worse, seventy-sevenfold. Not so subtly making God out to be weak and himself out to be invincible. He has committed Cain's sin, but he has gone even further. And for Lamech, there is no fear of any consequences, even from God himself. So, sexual degeneration unhealthy love of violence. This is the civilization of the ungodly. Great technological advancement, but terrible moral decline. And so it is with every society, every civilization that rejects the authority and the command and the design of God. One preacher summarizes it and applies it to us today by saying this, Today, in our culture, we enjoy great benefits of advanced civilization in farming, technology, and in the arts. But when man looks to civilization to cure his rootlessness without God, he finds the best he can produce degenerates into fuel for lust and violence, lawless pleasure, and vengeful power. From the greatest to the least, most educated to the least educated, the old and the young, in the halls of government to the halls of the home, the same thing happens. And no amount of tech toys, however distracting they might be, however they might drown out our screaming consciences, no amount of tech toys and entertainment can fill the void and rescue us. If anything, it's like some kind of drug that we take to drown out our conscience and to make us forget that payday is coming. That's the line of Cain. That's the ungodly civilization. That is the way of a hardened heart. And as we saw last time in verses 1 through 16, there is no neutral ground and there is no standing still. Those who do not follow God in humility, in faith, 
in repentance and worship are growing harder toward him and are moving further away from him and further into their own moral decline. And if you don't think that's happening in our own society today, you need no look, look no further than our TVs. Our own entertainment is the greatest illustration of where we are today. We have 4K TVs. We have ultra high definition. We have special effects in all of the movies and really cool things that go on. Technology. We have even in my own family room something called a smart TV as if the old ones were dumb. And what do we watch with them? Sex and violence. That's what sells in our own world. And maybe even some of you are immersed in it. This passage is reminding us of how devastating and sinful it is. And it is calling us to repent and to forsake it. Because this is the way that Scripture calls us to avoid by setting our minds on things that are above. Well, that brings us to the other civilization, the better society, the better worldview. It's spent a lot of time in this text warning us against the dangers of an ungodly society. Why does it spend so much time there? Because from Genesis 4 all the way on, that is the society we are going to live in and among in a sinful world. But as those who are set apart unto the Lord, what should our mentality be? That brings us to the civilization of the godly, represented in the lineage of Seth. Now this is covered in only two verses in this chapter, verses 25 and 26, but there's some good stuff here, and it is setting us up for what we're going to see in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, there is no mention in these verses of technological advancement in Seth's line like there was with Cain. But that doesn't mean that there were no advances for them in the line of Seth. Nor does it indicate that the godly cannot have a positive and enriching effect in the world in which we live. It is not saying that. In fact, we need to understand we can and should have a positive and enriching effect in the world in which we live. Certainly, Seth and his descendants were a part of all of that. They were a part of the technological advances in the world at that time, just as Cain's line was. So while Jabel and Jubal and Tubal-Cain were the leaders at the forefront of these developments, there were plenty of others that came along and cultivated it. In both lines. But the emphasis here with Seth and his line is on the contrast between these two civilizations and what defines them. It is a comparison of what seems to matter in the eyes of the world and what actually matters in the eyes of God. It is a contrast between the temporal and the eternal. What characterized the line of Cain was the ungodly civilization, the temporal pursuits of the world, the selfish ambitions 
and though they accomplished great things, it was ultimately empty and vain and even degenerate. But what characterized the line of Seth, the godly civilization, was the eternal, the character of God, His provision and His promise. Seth had the earthly accomplishments too, but their identity and their purpose was wrapped up in something bigger, something better, something that would last longer. And so the first characteristic of the civilization of the godly that we see is that they were grateful to God. This is something that is very interesting to consider because in our world today, when you put gratefulness to God up against technological advancement, in the eyes of the world, that's a no-brainer. We're going to go for the technological advancement. That actually accomplishes something. Right? Not so with Cain. They were grateful to God. We get, a, we get a sense of this in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. That name Seth means appointed or anointed. And here, it is a reflection of Eve's testimony of hope at the birth of this son. Names meant something back then. And when Eve uses the word appointed here, it highlights her remembrance of God's promise of a deliverer back in chapter 3. She's still clinging to this. And it reflects her gratefulness for God's gift and His grace to her. There was nothing selfish or boastful in Eve with the birth of this child. It was just a grateful acknowledgement of God and His grace and His faithfulness to His promise. Don't doubt that Eve never forgot her sin on that dreadful day in Genesis 3. But she certainly never forgot God's promise of deliverance either. And so it is with those who are truly citizens of the godly society, the city of God. Whatever accomplishments or failures we have seen, we acknowledge every gift of God with humble gratitude and confident hope that He will stay true to His promise and deliver His people from their sins to eternal life. But at the same time, those who are of the civilization of the godly also have a realistic view of life and a realistic view of themselves, unlike Lamech, who thought he was invincible. And so the next characteristic of the civilization of the godly is that they were dependent on God. Dependent on God. Where do we see that? First part of verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And yes, that's a different name than Enoch. The name means frail or weak. And still in the spirit of acknowledging the grace of God, this is also an acknowledgement of the frailty of man. It is a confession that man's hope and security are not to be found in his own strength and in his own accomplishments. That man is still frail and weak. And this prepares us for the tragic refrain that we will see in chapter 5 where one generation after another ends with what words? And he died. 
stark contrast to Lamech in his boast. This is a recognition that man is capable of accomplishing many great things in this world by God's grace, but he is still frail and he dies every time. So the lesson here is to embrace the way of Seth, to avoid the way of Cain, that we must remember that no matter what we have achieved in this life, everything earthly will perish in the end, and death will meet us all. Christians are not focused in an unhealthy way on death. We are focused on death in a healthy way, remembering that it is appointed unto man once to die, and that is not the end of the story, that there is more to come after that. And our focus, our hope, and our security must be on what happens after that. So don't build your hopes or your security on the things of this world because you will lose it. And I can't help but think that that is exactly what the Lord is trying to remind us in the chaos of 2020, even as Christians. Invest your life in the one thing that rust cannot destroy and death cannot take away. Your faith in God alone. And that's what we see in the line of Seth at the end of verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And by the way, did you mention, did you notice 25 and 26 is the, the only time that God's mentioned in this passage? You don't see, it in, see him in the line of Cain. And the name that is used here is the name Yahweh. God, who is the covenant God of his people. The God who is and who was and whoever shall be, who has made himself known to his people. And that phrase that they call upon the name of the Lord has a whole range of meaning. Simply put, it means worship. But with that is included the idea of humility and dependence and praise and proclamation. They looked to God for their hope, for their security, and for their prosperity. They didn't set their hope on the things of this world. But they also submitted to God's design and God's commands. And then they told others who he is and what he has said, and what he has done. And again, so it is with all those who are truly citizens of the city of God. Our hope and security are not found in our earthly prosperity, but in God alone. So if God has richly blessed you, be thankful. Don't boast. Don't view yourself as better than someone else. Be thankful and put what He has given you to good use for His purposes. If God has blessed you with little, don't begrudge those who have more, as if your hope depends on what you have in this world. Do what everyone else is called to do. Take what God has given you and put it to use for His good purposes. For those who trust in God, our hope and security are not found in earthly prosperity, but in God alone. We are not satisfied 
with the lust and degraded pleasures of this world. We are disgusted by what the world finds delightful. Because God is our joy. God is our delight. And making Him known is the driving mission of our lives. And so in this passage, we are met with a sharp contrast between the civilization of the ungodly and the civilization of the godly. Now the point here is not to say that one earthly family was better than the other or smarter than the other or inherently greater than the other. After all, sin will eventually corrupt Seth's line too. That's why the flood happens. Seth's line is wiped out in the flood too, except for Noah and his family. The point here is a matter of the heart. And these two family lines serve as an illustration of the spiritual reality of this world throughout history, even until today. There are only two civilizations. The ungodly and the godly. The city of man and the city of God. One is the pathway of sin that rejects God and His authority and that pathway will destroy all who live in it. And it's almost as if this passage anticipates the objection by including that technological advancement spot. Wait a minute, you can't tell me all is that bad. Look at all that I've accomplished! Right? And that certainly may be good, but it will not save. It will not rescue. It will not last. Without the acknowledgement of God in it all, Without God as the priority and the Lord over all of it, it will come to nothing. It will be as wood, hay, and stubble that is burned up on the day of the judgment of God. But the other pathway is the pathway of godliness, of faith in God, confidence in His faithfulness and promises, and submission to His Word and to His design. This is the way of eternal life. So really the question is, on which way do you walk this morning? To which civilization do you belong? I want us as we close to consider the instruction that we get on this matter from the New Testament. In 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, we are told, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a pretty sharp contrast, isn't it? So Christians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind 
on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's two ways. If you're on the road of Cain, if you're in the civilization of Cain, the ungodly, you will pass away. You will face the eternal judgment of God because you are his enemy. But you don't have to stay there. God has provided a way of escape through Jesus Christ so that all who believe in him can be transferred from the ungodly civilization to the godly, where there is humility, there is worship, there is newness of life, there is godliness, and there is eternal life. It's not found by your technological achievement. It's not found by your earthly accumulation of stuff. It's found only by faith in Christ. Christians, you have faith in Christ. You don't have to live for that other stuff. Go out and be a good worker. Contribute to the advancement of society in a godly way, but do not fix your hopes there. Set your mind on things above. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this reminder from your word.